This is Dennis Ramondi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast and YouTube channel, Spirit Matters Talk, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Also, if you go to YouTube, uh, you just type in Spirit Matters Talk, and uh, we are now available there. And uh, our archives are free and available to the public with over 300 uh, interviews. Uh, we have back on our show today, I'm very happy to have back on our show, uh, Matthew Fox. He is an American priest and theologian formerly a member of the Dominican Order with the Catholic Church. He became a member of the Episcopal Church following his expulsion from the order in 1993. Uh, Matthew has written uh, 35 books that have been translated into 68 languages and have sold millions of copies worldwide. His latest book, which we'll be discussing today, Matthew Fox, Essential Writings on Creation Spirituality. Matthew, thank you so very much for taking the time to come back on the show with us. Thank you, Dennis and Philip. I've always enjoyed your show and I love what you're doing with it. Spirit does matter, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Great. Yeah. Uh, um, for listeners, we've, we interviewed Matthew uh, a couple of years ago, so we commend you to go back to our archive and uh, tune into that and you'll hear more about uh, Matthew's uh, background and uh, his <laughs> Uh, unique and important journey. Um, I want to focus today on this new book, which is essentially a collection of excerpts from the voluminous writings of Matthew Fox, uh, compiled uh, by uh, Charles Burak. Um, Matthew, what, what led to this book? Why this book now? Well, it was an invitation from Orbis Books because they've, um, they have a series here that they call Modern Spiritual Masters. And um, they've done books like this for Thich Nhat Hanh, for Thomas Merton, Richard Bohr, uh, Flannery O'Connor, and it's good company. <laughs> Great company. Flannery so, O'Connor, interesting. Wow. Yeah, yeah. in fact, that was one of their first in the series. It is interesting. Um, but... Uh, but also I think it's timely because for one thing, I'm now 81 years old and it's a way to kind of summarize for a new generation, especially what creation spirituality means because that's what got me in all the trouble that I got in. You, you alluded to that in, the, in your invitation or your, your opening remarks here, Dennis, that um, yeah, my journey has been a little bumpy <laughs> and um, it, um, it, what should I say? It disturbed the powers that be in the Vatican uh, 30 years ago or so. And um, But I love what Joe Campbell says, that none of us lives a life we had intended. So uh, when I joined the Dominicans, I thought that was kind of the, the rest of my life. But as it turned out, things were a lot more exciting than I had anticipated. <laughs> Maybe you can, uh, uh, for those people who don't, who've not heard the term creation spirituality, uh, please define it for us and explain <laughs> why it got you in trouble. <laughs> yes, um, it was my mentor when I did my doctoral studies in spirituality at the Institut Catholique in Paris. My mentor there was Father Chenu, Père Chenu, a 75-year-old at the time, uh, Dominican a theologian who was very important in the Second Vatican Council and um, very important with the foundational liberation theology in South America. And uh, he was silenced by the Pope 
for 12 years in 1940s and 1950s because he was working with Marxists after the war and um, also because he, um, he was trying to reinvent education, which has been a big part of my world too. But the Second Vatican Council kind of um, brought him out of the, out of the, uh, the dark <laughs> and he played an important and very positive role there. But anyway, he's the one who named the creation spiritual tradition for me. And I remember the moment in class, it was like St. Paul falling off his horse. It was, it just made so much sense to me that there are two traditions, two rivers in the Christian tradition. One is fall redemption. It begins with sin and it kind of goes downhill with there. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas uh, creation begins with creation, the goodness of creation. Check it out. Genesis 1, the first page of the Bible. I swear 98% of Christian Preachers have had the first page of the Bible ripped out by somebody because there's not a word about sin or evil. It's about how good the world is. This is good. The sun is good. The, the plants are good. The trees are good. The animals are good. And then humans come along and it's very good. I mean, hey, where did that optimism go? You know, so um, that's really, and so I talk about original blessing. And that was the book that blew the roof off the Vatican because I learned from their response, their exaggerated response, that uh, they're really invested in original sin, even though Jesus never heard about original sin. No right. Jews heard about original sin. Ali Weissel says the idea of original sin is alien. It's not only not in the Bible, he says it's alien to Jewish thinking. So what is this that Christians have followed St. Augustine it's the first time the term is used is in the fourth century. And, um, and it was the century that Christianity inherited the Roman Empire. So there's some kind of not so subtle connection there. If you're going to run an empire, original sin is great. But <laughs> if you can talk about Jesus' teachings, uh, original blessing is, is what he was talking about. And the great mystics, I've been working on Hildegard of Bingen, Thomas Aquinas, of course, Francis of Assisi is in that tradition. Meister Eckhart, Julian Norwich, and so forth, they talk this way too, um, and, and about bringing in the, the feminine, the motherhood of God, Julian Norwich, who's over my shoulder here, that's the mm -hmm. cover of my recent book on her, um, she talks about God as mother and develops it in a very rich and profound way. So, um, Cesar is accused of this heresy of being a feminist theologian, that's what Cardinal Ratzinger said. I didn't know being a feminist theologian was a her heresy, but he thinks so. <laughs> this is projection. And, um, and of course, original blessing, they did not like that. And, um, and I don't condemn homosexuals. And that was a list of complaints, that and a few more from, <clears throat> from them. But anyway, it was a journey. <laughs> I'm curious. Uh, yeah. Uh, you, you started thinking along these lines once you started studying in, in uh, Paris. And I had I'd read that the person that encouraged you to go to Paris to study was uh, Thomas Merton. And I'm wondering um, what was the reason he uh, uh, encouraged you to go to Paris to study? And do you think back in his mind, he was thinking along your lines and maybe had that influence on you early on? Yes, I, I wrote him when, when my Dominican superior said you can go to Europe to get a doctor in spirituality, which I was pushing someone to do because right. we weren't really studying spirituality in the seminary, which is pretty typical. Um, they said, well, wh where to go? And I said, well, let me write Thomas Merton. They thought I was crazy. But four days later, I got a full page letter from Merton saying, go to Paris, go to the Institute of Catholic in Paris. So um, 
it took a while. To make, they said to me, no, you can't go to Paris. I said, why not? Well, they said, we never sent anyone to France who came home again. <laughs> <laughs> so, but we had a standoff for two or three months. I kept hitting them over the head with Merton's letter. And finally, they, um, they relented and sent me to Paris. And of course, later, I think they regretted I came home. But anyway, <laughs> that's another story. But um, yeah, Merton was, a, you know, I read him when I was a teenager, like a lot of people did. And I was very moved by his description of his, his journey. And, um, and of course, I read him in my more mature years. But he was especially influenced by Meister Eckhart. In 1958, Merton was um, interacting with um, uh, D.T. Suzuki, who brought Zen from Japan mm -hmm. to America. And uh, Suzuki loved Eckhart. And he said to Merton, you must read the one Zen thinker of the West, Meister Eckhart. And Merton said, but he's been condemned by the church. And Suzuki said, well, I can't help that, can I? And Merton <laughs> thought about it. He spent the year 1958 reading nothing but Zen poetry and Eckhart. And it flipped him. He's a totally different person after 1958. Uh, he uh, becomes prophetic. And he speaks out about war, about the Vietnam War. He links up with Dr. King, with Thich Nhat Hanh, who, of course, is very young then, with the Dalai Lama. And, and you know, his life just shifted. But it was Eckhart. And... Um, uh, Merton wrote in his last Asian journal to, his, his, to uh, Asia, where he died, uh, he wrote in the journal, Eckhart is my lifeboat. Eckhart is my lifeboat. Wow. So Eckhart was very important to, to Merton, and he was very important to me as I, you know, as I got into my... Mm -hmm. Well, journal. now that you mentioned Eckhart, Meister Eckhart, I, I can tell you when I first was exposed to Meister Eckhart, absolutely blew my mind. Ooh. I had no idea there were people like that in the Western tradition. Huh. Um, and so uh, for those in, in uh, listening and watching who are not familiar with Eckhart, tell us a little bit about him and why uh, he is uh, such a luminary among the, mm. the, the Christian mystics. Yeah. Well, he was a Dominican like Thomas Aquinas was and like I was. And um, he was born when Aquinas was about, I mean, he, let me think, he was 15 when Aquinas died. And by the way, Rumi, I think if I have it right, that he was about 13 when Rumi died. So it was a very interesting era in human consciousness. And he was a contemporary of Hafiz, the wonderful Sufi mystic who followed on Rumi. And, um, but uh, He's no doubt one of the greatest mystics of the West, if not the greatest, but he was condemned a week after he died by the Pope. Um, but like many condemnations, it was very political. He was in support of the women's movement of the day, the Beguines. He lived in the late 13th, early 14th century. And um, the Pope at the time, John XXII, uh, condemned the Beguines 17 times which suggests that it wasn't real effective, his condemnation. <laughs> and by the time that Pope died, there were hundreds of thousands of Beguines. And the Beguines were women who chose not to be married and not to be nuns. At that time, to be a nun meant you were locked in a cloister. So they were in the world, uh, earning and living with their hands, sewing and making stained glass and so forth, and working with the poor and the, the young and the sick. That was their main work. And... Um, 
But and the, the Pope actually said anyone who works with them, any priest who works with them will be expelled from the priesthood. Well, that didn't slow Eckhart down. He worked with them very closely. They took down a lot of his sermons. It's because of them that we have his writings, his, his preaching. And, um, and he also supported the peasants. In Germany in that time, there was a growing gap between the haves and have-nots. In fact, after Eckhart died, after he was condemned, 10 years later, the peasant wars broke out. And Eckhart was, was uh, at the, his trial. He had this trial in Avignon where the Pope was listening, uh, was living. And um, they said to him, why do you preach to these peasant people in their own language? Uh, if you preached in Latin, we'd, we'd let you go because you're telling them disturbing things like they're aristocrats and they're noble. And, you know, the aristocrats don't want to hear that. They didn't tell them that, but the aristocrats didn't want to hear, hear that, that the peasants were being told that they're noble. So Eckhart was trying to build up the, um, the self-worth of the peasant people. And um, for that, he was condemned that and, and supporting the, the Beguines, the women's movement. So he was prophetic as well as mystical. And, uh, and you know, I, I, my latest book at Eckhart, I put him in the room with Thich Nhat Hanh in one chapter. So he's, he's been called Buddhist by Buddhists. Right. He's been called Hindu by Kumar Swami, the great Hindu. He's been called Jung. Well, Jung says, I, learned, I got the key to the unconscious from Meister Eckhart. Is that right? Amazing. Well, yeah. I... Yeah, so there's wow. a chapter on Jung and Meister, and then Rabbi Heschel and Meister Eckhart. So, I mean, he's just amazing. I don't know anyone, living or dead, who's had such a broad influence and through so many traditions as Eckhart has had. I think of him as uh, the Advaita Vedantist of, uh, right. of the West. He's a great non-dual. Absolutely, right. non-dual. Well, oh, I want to ask uh, uh, Matthew, uh, today, I, when you were expelled from the Catholic Church, that was then. This is now new leadership and all. Would they be more receptive to you when you're thinking now? Uh, and also their view toward uh, Eckhart, would it be different now than it would have been when we, you were expelled? Has the church evolved? Has it changed? Sure. Or is it the same old church? <laughs> same old church. <laughs> Everything evolves. That's the law of the universe, isn't but is it? it evolving even even a, churches a, a evolve. Sometimes yeah. they evolve to the darker end. Yeah, and that's, sometimes that's my question, end. yeah. But yeah, but no, Pope Francis, even the choice of, uh, of the name that he took is of another ilk from those previous two popes who, who um, gave me a bad time. And for example, his wonderful encyclical on the environment, Laudate Si, actually it was written by a student of mine, uh, a master student who was going through my creation spirituality uh, master's program. He was a priest from Ireland who was living in the Philippines. And after graduating from our program, he went back to the Philippines and started writing some, some books on ecology and spirituality, which obviously Pope Francis heard about or, or read. And he plucked them up from the Philippines, took them to Rome and said, write this. So for me, that's quite a, what could I say, quite a jump from being censored and called a heretic by two popes. And in fact, they actually said, this is a quote, let's see, I, I memorized it. Um, dangerous and deviant. They said creation spirituality is dangerous and deviant. And um, of course, this is the same pope who's now in trouble for not right. dealing with the priest. And, um, but Pope Francis says, Laudate Si, and I've done a major um, 
review of it, uh, um, commentary on it, and it follows the four paths of Christ spirituality, and it is very much within the common tradition. And one scientist who's worked with me over the years has said that that encyclical is the best encyclical on science that the Vatican has ever written in, in history. Um, so, so no, Pope Francis is of another ilk than those previous. Uh, but, but nevertheless, you know, he's, he's up against a lot of opposition uh, within the ecclesial structure hierarchy because the previous two popes left behind a lot, I mean, a bunch of very right-wing and uh, po uh, uh, bishops and, and cardinals, uh, Opus Dei and all that. So uh, he's got uh, his hands full. So um, I don't know what what history will say about, well, what will, what will unfold from all that. But I, I give Pope Francis credit. I criticize him for some things, like his canonizing Jim Pirocera was a horrible thing here in California. Right. You work with Native people like I do. I mean, they actually said to me, if he goes ahead and canonizes that guy, he's making war on indigenous people the world over. That is a quote from a Native right. American leader in California. It was a horrible mistake. So, you know, I don't um, bury my head about that. But of course, we're all imperfect and we make mistakes. And popes, popes like to say they're infallible, but hey, <laughs> there are a lot of mistakes. If you look at history, with, well, with still a lot of encyclopedias, the yes. mistakes made by popes, like the doctrine of discovery in the 15th century, which gave permission to Christian kings and queens to raid the New World and Africa. Africa for saves the New World for for gold and silver, whatever. I mean, the destruction that followed uh, after the 15th century doctrine of discovery bulls by two popes is is horrible, and it needs apologizing. Mm -hmm. I think it'd be wonderful if Pope Francis were to burn those documents right in St. Peter's Square with the television cameras going, or at least a Xerox copy. They can put them, put the originals under glass someplace in a museum, but, you know, that would say a lot. I think the Native people would would um, be, appreciate that. Right. I, I'm just curious, were there members of the, uh, uh, were there priests in, in, in the Catholic Church, like some somebody, for instance, like Thomas Keating, that reached out and tried to uh, mm. uh, give you support at the time mm. you were going through uh, your, your, uh, your troubles with the church? My, my trials. Um, well, I'll tell you, especially the Dutch Dominicans, they reached out strongly in their their council the group that runs it they sent a formal letter to my provincial saying we will adopt matthew fox he can join our province become a dutch dominican and still keep his work going in california and i went to my provincial and said this is a win-win-win you guys don't have to deal with rome and what the dutch said to me they said you know we've been fighting the vatican for 750 years we know how to defend theologians the american dominicans don't they've never had to do it really but um, so we want to adopt you. And I thought, well, this is win, win, win. And um, but my provincial who had the power to veto it, you have to permission from your previous province to switch to province. He slammed his fist on the table. He was 10 years younger than me in the order. And he said, I don't want you in any province in the world. So that was the end of that. Uh, reaching out by the Dutch Dominicans. Um, yeah, there have been some some priests over the years who have um, 
reached out to me, but not too many in America. I mean, the whole point of their silencing me for a year and uh, was to put fear into theologians. And to be honest, I hate to say it, but it worked. Uh, I did not get a lot of support. Um, but um, what can I say? I've, I learned a lot about human nature in that process, that uh, fear goes a long way. In, um, and does, yeah. after the fall came redemption. Right. Speaking <laughs> of which, um, I'm intrigued. Uh, in, in this beautiful collection of writings, and, and I should, for listeners, they're mostly short excerpts uh, grouped together by theme from all of your, your writings. And where you explain creation spirituality, you, uh, the excerpt, as you did here, contrasts creation spirituality from the uh, fall and redemption sort of theology. And you mentioned that earlier, uh, but it seems to me that has tremendous implications. It's not just a theological uh, formulation, but what follows from a creation spirituality as opposed to a fall and redemption about human life and how you live it and what we are and our nature. Uh, there seems there's a lot there, which is probably why it was threatening. What, what, how did you see the implications and, and, and all these years of uh, teaching and writing about creation spirituality? What do you see in the lives of people who move in that direction as opposed to the fall redemption direction? Yeah, so one thing, of course, the obvious thing really is, is about climate change, isn't it? It's about our extinction that we're all facing, whether we, we're in denial about it or not. Um, and um, it's about the sacredness of creation and uh, our responsibility to, um, you know, to not destroy Mother Earth while we're here. And um, so it's about our empowerment uh, to do something about it and to stand up and say no and to, to undergo those transformations of lifestyle and, and, of course, to trigger our imaginations, our creativity, our science to find ways out of this corner into which our species has painted ourselves. So it's that, and that is, you know, I've been saying for years, the number three moral issues of our time are ecology, ecology, and ecology. I mean, uh, if the air isn't clean and the food isn't and the yeah and the soil isn't isn't there anymore and the rivers aren't clean i mean none of us is going to um lead lives that are are blessed and joyful and none of our children to come so so that's just really standing out now that it, that we're in the in the 2020s and uh so that stands out but another dimension to it is um that mysticism the experience of the joy of life but also the dark night of the soul and the emptying that we undergo the, and the, the contemplation, the mindfulness, but the mind emptiness too. All that is not an end in itself. It leads to creativity and to uh, justice making and compassion and saying no. So I say the, the deepest responses of life, what, what prayer really is, is a yes to life and a no to injustice. 
And, and the first is what we call mysticism, and the second is what we call the prophetic vocation. So those two things work together as a dialectic, they dance. And I think that's what adult spirituality is about. And we admire it when we see it. Think of Thich Nhat Hanh, who, who passed just last month, um, that he was both of those things, wasn't he? He was a real, not just a contemplative, but a teacher of how to, to slow down and to be still. And in, in other words, to tame that reptilian brain that wants to, you know, own the earth. And on the other hand, he also developed this new word in Buddhism, engaged Buddhism, which meant that you stood up to war makers. And uh, I mean, he paid a price for it. You know, he made enemies in North Vietnam and South Vietnam. He made enemies in his monastic community. He literally had to flee his country. And, um, you know, so he, he paid the price that Jesus paid that in many ways that Martin Luther King paid. He didn't pay the ultimate price of, of dying young and as a martyr. But anyway, um, you know, such a great soul, such a great soul. And a part of Christ's patriarchy too is deep ecumenism to, to find the wisdom in all the world traditions. I mean, I identify as a Christian, but but I have more in common with our hope with the Thich Nhat Hanh than I do with the 700 Club, <laughs> that version of Christian, <laughs> which I find very yeah. difficult yeah. to, but Ma to Matthew, uh, justify. <laughs> in, in your book, in your latest book, uh, you, you write that, uh, it's something Phil and I have discussed, uh, that 75% uh, of Americans between the ages of 18 and 29 consider themselves spiritual but not religious. Is that... In the in the big picture, even as a Christian, even as a Christian theologian and 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 clergy, is that a good sign? Is that something that can be used to uh, bring Christianity to a a more um, effective, uh, a a more uh, uh, original uh, uh, message uh, than than where we are at now? Yeah. More authentic, yes, uh, yes, I, I believe that. Um, you know, Christianity has existed for about 2,000 years, and there have been a lot of ups and a lot of downs, and um, we're in one of those down periods now. But I think one of the big things is the, the climate crisis, that the young people know that time is not on our side as a species and not on their side. Are they, are they even going to want to bring children into the world? Uh, what is life going to be like in 30 years, etc.? So, you know, you think of Greta Thunberg as one of these great prophets, but she's just one of many that are feeling those things that she articulates, and rightly so. And so they don't want to be bothered with all the piles of paraphernalia that we call religion at this time. Uh, you know, as I say, we have to travel not with basilicas on our back, but backpacks. That spirituality today has to be troubadour-like. It has to be portable. And, and I include not just Western religion, but Eastern too. You know, this is not a time for more monasteries. It's a time for, for um, what should I say, um, uh, bringing together, synthesizing the best that the monastic traditions have to teach us and to carry that into our work, whether you're a lawyer or a teacher or a politician or an artist or whatever, uh, that that lay people and have to become uh, kind of take charge and and uh, be spiritual in their 
relationships in their communities and their families and in their work. And I think this is the way to change the world because time's running out. I mean, scientists say we have less than eight years now that is 2022. So who are we kidding? And uh, so I say we should travel with backpacks in our back, not basilicas. Did um, Matthew and I think and, the young and, feel this? They, they may not articulate it, but mm -hmm. that's where they're making the choices. They are. Mm -hmm. The um, lengthy table of contents, and it's lengthy because it it names every uh, excerpt. So, and there are many, many short excerpts. Um, some of them stand out because they're very intriguing, and and one is uh, one says. Evil evolves. What do you mean by evil evolves? And, and I know that's related somehow to the concept of sin. So maybe you can uh, explain both. Well, I wrote a, a big book on evil called um, Sins of the Spirit, Blessings of the Flesh. Hmm. And that's a phrase from Thomas Aquinas, actually, where he hmm. says that... Um, uh, sins of the spirit are far more serious than sins of the flesh. <clears throat> sins of the flesh, he said, takes you toward God, but sins of the spirit take you away from God. Mm. Well, when I came across that in Aquinas, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, it blew my mind because, you know, so many preachers are, you know, are real adept to talk about sins of the flesh, but how many Christians could actually name the sins of the spirit? And the sins of the spirit are things like greed and envy and, um, and violence and, and hatred and so forth. So, I mean, just that one sentence, which I boil down to be the, the title of the book, the, the subtitle of the book is called um, Transforming Evil and Soul and Society. So I do think that at this time in history, especially we Americans, I know everybody is thinking about evil. And yet I think that the traditional church teaching on sin has been so oversold. I have met so many people, Protestant and Catholic, who told me at about the age of 14, they, they left the church, or at least they quit thinking about sin because they learned that everything was sin. Everything they liked was sin. <laughs> you know, this isn't my vocabulary anymore. So I think that there's been like the, 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 the boy shouting wolf when it comes to sin. And the, the church has, I think, distorted the meaning of evil by a cheapening uh, evil by talking about sin. So I really think there's a big difference between evil and sin. Evil is something much bigger. And we're experiencing it now. I mean, January 6th, where was, that was televised evil. And, and the response to it, there's a whole chunk of Americans who say, oh, it was nothing. It was nothing. Yeah, we'll tell the policemen that, whose lives are ruined mentally. I mean, they're, you know, the rest of their life. And, and of course, some lost their life. So the point is that Evil is real close to us now, and um, we need more debate and discussion about evil, and we need to bring the word back. And, and I do disassociate it from sin, if you will. I mean, not entirely. You can't get away entirely from that language. But what I did in my book on evil was I, I, I went east, and I took the seven chakras and compared it to the seven capital sins of and the oh. seven... Uh, spirit, sins of the spirit of the West. And it really works because a chakra is, you know, is a healthy power center, uh, seven of them traditionally in, in, in the physiology of our bodies, but also in our psychology and spirituality. And so 
sin. Now, the, the biblical word for sin, the Hebrew word for sin is an archery term that means to miss the bullseye. So the chakra is a bullseye. And what is a chakra that's missing the bullseye? That would be, and it's comparable. I'll give you one example. The seventh chakra, of course, is here in the crown of our head. And what it is, is the gathering of our light and kundalini energy all the way up our spine to that seventh chakra at the top of our head. Uh, and then it shoots out to join other light beings, ancestors, good people working in the world, saints, and, um, and, and the rest, and building community together. But an off-center chakra would be envy because envy recognizes the light in others. But instead of joining up to do good work together, it wants to shoot it down. And envy is behind a lot of war and a lot of patriarchal politics. <laughs> if you've ever been in a patriarchal institution, well, like the Vatican, envy plays a big role there. So, so I go through all the seven chakras and the seven capital sins that way, every one of them really works. So what I'm trying to do is devise a new language for evil, to talk about evil, because evil is real, and it's, it's gathering steam, you know, it's, and it's everywhere. Evil is smart. It, it goes where power is, and it's very drawn to places like the Supreme Court and, and um, uh, other place, high places. And so we got to start talking about because it's real. And how do you uh, define it? Yeah. Pardon me? How define do you define it. evil? Yeah. Well, um, simply I would define it as the energy of, of a dis to destroy and to um, use power for power's sake or for ego's sake, as opposed to compassion which is power with and passion with. And um, like I say, I think every news broadcast is giving us examples of, of evil. And there's a danger of giving it too much attention. You see, it mm. wants attention. It wants more power and that's how it gets more power. So we always have to, you have to balance it, even thinking about it with, with beauty. The opposite of evil is not good. Bad is the opposite of good. The opposite of evil is the sacred. Mm. And that's why, uh, you know, this whole discussion about original blessing and so forth about the sacredness of the universe is so important today um, that, uh, you know, our 13.8 billion year journey is bigger than us. It's sacred. We didn't do it. We've received that, that gift, including the gift of the earth over over this time and uh so i think it's real important to realize that the opposite of evil is the sacred so it's it the the struggle takes place in a world um not just of um what should i say human laws and so forth but of that deep place where we connect to what eckhart calls the ground of our beings and um and that's what's sacred. And then we're, we're, it does is evil come as part of human nature where that choice is there to either go toward the secret, sacred or against the sacred, which is evil? Or are, are, why does it exist? Uh, and from whence, where does it come from? Hmm. 
Well, um, why does it exist? Um, I think it, it, it parallels the fact that we do have choices to make. That other species, you know, you know like Thomas Merton said, every non-two-legged creature is a saint. <laughs> so there, you're, my dog lying here, he's a saint. Um, most of the time, anyway. But, um, but the point is that we humans have this, these added options <laughs> and so many choices to make. And we're confused. And the native people talk this way too. They say that only the humans wander from the red road. Only the humans wander from the red road. And the bear is, do, is doing a great job being a bear mm -hmm. and the, the tree being a tree. But we humans have so many other options because we've got this imagination. We've got this consciousness that is so vast. And, um, and then we've got these problems <laughs> that, that, of course, is what the psychological industry is, is trying to assist us with the shadow and our, our which I say, our temptations to greed and to, and to uh, arrogance and to racism and sexism and all that, which is all part of arrogance. So, um, I mean, you look at his, human history and it's not, it's not always pretty. So, and we have to work at creating community. We have to work at creating peace and justice, but, but it's doable. I mean, that's what all the spiritual traditions are saying. They're all saying, hey, we're capable of compassion. Mm -hmm. and, and, and as Eckhart says, compassion means justice. It's not, it's not a sentimental thing about dropping crumbs from the table. It is about justice. It's creating structures that allow love to happen and to flourish. So um, I think it's, we've been given this tremendous, we call it free will or freedom, freedom but with it is responsibility. And, um, you know, Aquinas said in the 13th century, one human being can do more evil than all the other species put together. <laughs> now, I'll never forget when I read that, it just, I fell off my chair. Wow, <laughs> something to be proud of. We're good at this thing called evil. And, and this was 800 years before Hitler or Pol Pot or Stalin. How did he know in the 13th century that one human being could do more evil? Because he recognized our power of creativity mm -hmm. and how it can go both ways. You know, it can, it can do so, such wonderful things on the one hand for community and for music and all the rest. On the other, it can also make nuclear weapons and tear down a rainforest in a day that has taken nature and God 10,000 years to give birth to, and that will never happen again. So, you know, we're in, we're in this great big, um, what can I say, drama <laughs> of, uh, of, of evil and sacred. And, um, and I had a dream several years ago that was very powerful, very simple and very clear. The dream said to me, there's nothing wrong with the human species except one thing today. Nothing wrong with human species today except one thing. Now, that alone is shocking, I think. I, we could pull out paper and come up with 99 things wrong with us today. But that's what it said. And it said, you have forgotten the sense of the sacred. Mm. That was the dream. And I think it's, it's a big dream. It's a dream for the community. We have forgotten the sense of the sacred. And that's, I think that's what the climate change is all about. You know, we've been raping the earth for centuries. And, and destroying the indigenous people who knew how to live closer to the earth. And now we're paying the price. And, and we better move real fast. You know, I've been meditating a lot lately on, because they're finding all kinds of 
cousins of Homo sapiens, especially in Southeast Asia now. You know, right. we knew about Neanderthal, we knew about right. that, that other denizens up in Siberia and all that, but now they're finding themselves, he said, there are 14 now that I've counted, and they've given them names and everything. These are all our cousins. But the point is, they're all extinct. We're the last one standing, Homo sapiens. And the odds are they were going to follow them because they didn't have what it took for survival either so this is why spirituality and, and you know a discussion like we're having and like your program offers is so important we've got to as thomas berry says reinvent the human and we've got eight years to do it and um but of course one thing is that nothing moves the human like necessity you know i mean you know and so the fact as the facts come out if we allow them to play um and many politicians don't want them to come out, but as the facts come out, people are, you know, getting engaged and there's a lot of good stuff happening. Just the, right. today I read about how in India, they, they planted something like 60, tree, 60 million trees this year, <laughs> ordinary people, you know, encouraged by the government. So, so, I mean, there are many things we can do and despair is, is a luxury, you know, that is despair isn't going to accomplish anything it never has. Mm -hmm. So we, we've got to, you know, kick ass. And that's that's what the prophets have done. And that's what the prophetic vocation is about doing. We got to wake up. And that's why the Black Madonna's back, because she's about waking people up and shouting in, 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 in the streets and talking about the suffering of Mother Earth, who's crying to get us to wake up. We're we're capable of it. Uh, but but do we have the will? Right. Now, well, I was going to. Uh, uh, yeah. What? You should, we should probably wrap it up. But, yeah, I was going to uh, yeah, wrap it up by asking Matthew um, uh, for uh, final advice for our viewers and listeners. But kick ass may be the uh, final <laughs> word on that. But uh, what would you like to leave uh, our audience with, Matthew? Well, we all have to wake up. We all have to wake up and wake one another up and then ask, you know, what can we contribute? And, uh, and we're not alone. You know, there, there are so many around the world who are waking up, so many humans, but well, so, you know, there are spirits, there are angels, there are our ancestors. Uh, the community of saints is, is the Christian term for that. But, um, and there are scientists and, and all the religions have to wake up. Like I, I said earlier, we have to strip them down and, and travel lightly, but with the essence, the essence of what they have to give to transform us in deep ways. And I think we have to wake up to jo the joy of living and the, the amazement, the gratitude of being here after 13.8 billion years. And like this new telescope, the Webb telescope, I just think that's an amazing opportunity for our species. It's going to be, you know, feeding us pictures of the original light of the universe and so forth. I mean, don't underestimate what we've already done, that humans are, you know, we play a special role and we are here to celebrate the universe. And um, so, you know, I think that we've got to get more serious about joy. <laughs> By serious, I mean, realize that, well, what Aquinas said, joy is a human's noblest act. Mm -hmm. We should lead with that. And joy is what we're trying to preserve and pass on to future generations, isn't it? 
And so, you know, we have to start cultivating the best in ourselves and, um, and not waste time doing it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Everybody, viewers, listeners, uh, Matthew Fox has a huge library of his own writings. This slim volume collects a lot of the essence of his work right here. Uh, so we commend it highly. Thank you so much for uh, not only being with us, but for all the uh, wonderful work you've done over the decades. And may you continue for a long and, and, time. And uh, I really, uh, I have many more questions. So a third <laughs> visit, uh, uh, we will be requesting at some point uh, much more to discuss. Great. Well, thank, thank you for our conversation, for this platform. I'm so glad that you have a platform. It's our Names privilege. Sure, it matters. Uh -huh. <laughs> it does matter. Yeah. Okay, thank you again. <laughs>